News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. False advertising, it is an issue for many people. I mean, especially these days when groceries are getting more and more expensive and maybe you're still willing to, you know, pay a little bit extra for a product that you believe is unique, something made locally, maybe, or in the case we're talking about today, pasta that you think is made in Italy. That is the basis for a lawsuit that has been filed in the United States. Two people who are suing Barilla Pasta because the product is made in the United States from ingredients from all over the world. So not Italy, even though the box says Italy's number one pasta and has an Italian flag on it. So why does a suit like this have some merit? Well, joining us now to talk about that is Rebecca Tushnet, who's a Frank Stanton professor of First Amendment law at Harvard Law School. Rebecca, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So why does a suit like this have some merit? Is there some false advertising to this? So uh, the question in every false advertising case is, are reasonable consumers likely to be uh, uh, fooled by it? Um, And it really just depends on the situation. So uh, it's calling something French fries would definitely not confuse people about their origin. On the other hand, calling something French champagne or France's favorite champagne might well uh, if it wasn't actually from France. So, you know, I think the uh, this lawsuit certainly uh, has some facial plausibility. I think the court was right not to kick it out. Um, But, you know, we'll want to know more about how people actually look at that message. What is there? Is there a message here for companies, though? Like, do companies need to be more careful with how they market products? So, you know, I I think uh, most companies know that uh, consumers are interested in particular qualities. And in general, the rule in Canada and the U.S. is that they have to substantiate, they have to be able to uh, show that it's true, uh, whenever they're actually making factual claims that matter to consumers. So, you know, I think uh, businesses tend to know what's selling their products, and they just have to make sure that they're telling the truth about that. Right. So in this case, they knew that by marketing it as Italian pasta, people would think it more valuable. But in the end, it it's not Italian pasta, though, is it? Um, so it, it, it sure doesn't sound like it's fair to say it's Italian pasta, although it's a, you know it's an Italian company, so we'll want to know more about how people react to that. But uh, uh, you know, origin matters in a lot of cases, uh, especially uh, if there's a regional reputation for something. So it, it's certainly uh, reasonable to to ask right. how are people going to react. So in the United States, then, Rebecca, is this something that consumers have been doing? Like, do they are there a lot of false advertising suits that get filed? Um, there are a lot, you know, by many counts, the numbers are steadily rising, uh, in part because uh, sort of grocery store purchases are kind of the last place where you haven't pre-signed away your rights, uh, especially in the U.S. So what does that mean? Like if you pre-sign away your rights? So if you have your contract with your cell phone provider, uh, and this is true in Canada too, if you look at the contract, it will say things about the relationship uh, between you and when you can sue, and it will disavow as much as possible of any legal rights that you'd have in the absence of the agreement. So that contract will try and minimize the obligations the cell phone provider has to you. Um, And you just don't have those kinds of things with stuff you get off the shelves in the grocery store. Right. So I know some people think these kinds of suits are frivolous, though, don't they? 
So, uh, you know, it, I think it's very uh, hard to, to do a blanket condemnation. Part of the idea of a class action is, you know, a company might be uh, getting, you know, 50 cents a month from uh, 100,000 people uh, and uh, wrongly. And it's not worth it for any one of those people, but it's actually a pretty bad idea for society to uh, let the company make, you know, what is an aggregate a pretty significant profit wrongly. So the class action mechanism is kind of one of the few ways we have of dealing with that. Uh, and uh, I think it is appropriate to say uh, we should, you know, look at the aggregate amount of harm that the, that deception is doing. So, you know, sometimes cases uh, are not particularly uh, credible, but uh, if we want to let people sue at all, we have to let them take their chance. Right. I guess what I was thinking, is it about the money or is it really more about truth in advertising? So, you know, I think it's both. That is, when you're advertising falsely, um, part of the reason that uh, that people do that is to get uh, consumers to choose one product over another. And if they're doing so based on you know mistaken beliefs, then they're not able to exercise free choice. And that has economic consequences, right? So somebody who can make something cheaply and and pretend that it's from a place that it's not, uh, you know, can charge more, which undercuts the legitimate producers. And so this is a big thing, not just for geography, but for things like, is this produced by indigenous artists, for example? Right. What kind of responsibility, though, do we have as consumers? Like, how skeptical should we be about any claims then that we see? So, you know, I, I actually think that for very clear factual claims, uh, like place of origin, um, you know, we should be able to trust what sellers tell us. It's a big world. You can't investigate every product you buy. Um, so it's actually reasonable to rely on specific factual claims made by an advertiser. Um, otherwise, we're basically just in a hell of distrust. Um, which is not good for anyone and, and really hurts legitimate sellers the most because they tell the truth, but we don't believe them. Right. Can you think of times, though, when something like this has been successful, where a company has had to change how they market something? Um, so there are a lot of different examples. Um, so uh, one of the more recent uh, interesting cases in the U.S. is over a product called uh, Joint Juice, um, which makes some claims for sort of knee and joint health. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it really is very much case by case. So Palm Wonderful, if you know their pomegranate right. juice, a uh, number of years back, basically, they were making all these claims about how it would, you know, protect you against heart attacks and decrease the risk of cancer. And, you know, they really didn't have the, the appropriate basis for that. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's one thing to say my product is, is really tasty and in general, you know, eating a diet rich in fruits is good for you. And another to say, you know, we can save you from a heart attack. Right. So sometimes though, does it take then uh, legal action, Rebecca, to make these companies stop having those claims? Uh, yeah, certainly it does. Uh, you know, especially in, in cases like with Palm Wonderful or Joint Juice, it's kind of, you know, it's their value proposition. So uh, if it's working for them, um, then uh, they they are unlikely to stop unless constrained by some form of legal regulation, whether that's like an administrative agency or a lawsuit. Right. So I guess it's just we should always be a little bit skeptical of some grandiose claims that we I mean, if you're eating breakfast cereal, don't believe all the great stuff it's going to tell you about what it's going to do for you. 
Right. But at the same time, you know, we do want uh, to, uh, people to be able to trust sort of, uh, you know, is this a high calorie food? Uh, you know, what, uh, you know, what should I be eating to make sure that I get enough calcium? Right. So, you know, there are cases where you definitely want people to uh, be able to rely that on is, these representations. That is so true. Uh, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. We know that Surrey is a big school district, that a lot of kids move into that district every year. And you know what? That's a problem with the schools, right? Schools are crowded, building schools as fast as we can out there. But even they still have trouble figuring out just how many students are going to show up every year. Take the latest statistics. It turns out more than 1,300 students showed up in excess of what they were expecting in schools this past September. So how does that happen? How do you deal with that at that point? Well, joining us now is Ratinder Matthew, Associate Director of Communications for the Surrey School Board. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Sam. Thank you for having me. So how do you calculate? Like, how do you guess how many students or estimate are going to show up in September? So every spring, um, our district, just like all the other districts in our province, we all do our enrollment projections and our budget planning in the springtime. And typically, we do average about 1,000 students, 1,000 new students every school year. But with the pandemic, our, our projections, it made projections really difficult because immigration is a big factor. So is, you know, families moving and some did hold off during the pandemic for big moves. So this this fall, we were thinking we would be more in line with our uh projections pre-pandemic, but we did we did increase those up to 1,300 over those projections. That's a lot. Do you know where, or was it spread out all over the district? So it is spread out throughout the district. I mean, there are areas that are experiencing more growth, um, but, but it, is, it is pretty spread out. Immigration, like I mentioned, is a big factor, but we're also seeing families move to Surrey from other parts of BC, the Lower Mainland, as well as other provinces. So more and more families are, are choosing our district, and you know we're committed to providing quality education to every child. What kind of a strain does that put, though, on the district or on the schools, I guess, when you have that many kids show up that you weren't expecting? Yeah, well, it does put an impact on resources. So there's a lot of schools in our district that are operating over capacity um, as our enrollment continues to outspace available space. And um, so we are utilizing portables. We did move 32 portables in, and these are portables that were already within our district. So we were using them previously for seismic upgrades, so we were able to utilize them in our district. But it also means, um, you know, we are hiring and we are filling more roles, and our HR team is doing an amazing job with recruitment. Has the portable situation gotten better in recent years in Syria, or are we still talking about an awful lot of portables? So right now we have about a, about 334 portables in use in our district. Portables do allow us to keep our students in their neighborhood schools, um, and it is a short-term solution. We're working closely with our partners at the provincial level to, to increase capacity in our district, to have more sustainable long-term solutions. Um, and, and there's a number of projects currently under construction right now. Um, and, and we've submitted our capital submission plan to the ministry. We did that this past summer with um, additional projects that we're hoping can get approved. So in that capital plan then, how many new schools are you hoping for? So the plan that we submitted in September, there's nine new schools and 16 additions to existing schools. So to really increase the capacity and meet these growth, uh, these needs uh, that our communities need. Well, that's a lot. So where, mm-hmm. is it nine elementary schools? How many high schools? Um, so two high schools and then seven elementary. That is a lot. Is there a, a particularly high growth area that needs all those elementary schools? 
So in, in the south, in South Surrey, that's been growing. We opened an elementary school or a couple of elementary schools in, in the last couple of years and a secondary school, Grandview uh, Secondary, that opened in September last year. So that community is growing really rapidly. If you drive through it, you'll see a number of um, – there's lots of homes under construction right now. And so we're, we're trying to um, increase capacity in, in that community. So you've got those new schools that already opened up there. Tinder, would you say that those schools are already at capacity? Um, yeah, they are, and, and we're, we're working with, uh, you know, and, and the schools in that area as well. So we're working to meet the capacity needs in those communities. Wow, that is incredibly busy. So you said 334 portables in use in the Surrey School District. That number seems to me it has stayed about the same, hasn't it, with like even new schools opening? Yeah, and, and I think the pandemic was... Uh, you know, it did slow down. We're, we Prior to the pandemic, we were averaging over a 1,000 new students every school year. So it did slow down during uh, the pandemic. And this year, I, we're seeing the numbers that we were seeing previously. So we're seeing that level of growth. And, you know, it's we're committed to increasing capacity in our district. All right. So that sounds like another busy year then. So do you expect the same kind of growth next year? Um, I haven't seen the new projections, uh, but... You know, we prior to the pandemic, we were averaging over a thousand. So we're hoping it'll level off back to those levels again. All right. Well, thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning. Appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. So many issues to talk about with the healthcare system. We spoke with the ombudsperson earlier this week, Jay Chalk, about the really high number of reports. He said a 10-year high in the number of complaints that he's received about the healthcare system. So what can be done about that? What do we need to fix? Well, we thought, let's go to the person in charge. Adrian Dix joins us now, BC's Minister of Health. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Simi. You like it when you're introduced with hold on for one more day. It's good. <laughs> well, we were not going to lie. We were doing a little dance here ourselves. So I'm glad, yeah, I'm it, glad it, you enjoyed it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. There are certain songs that get in your head, you know? That's one of them. I know. I know. Yeah. Uh, so we were speaking with Jay Chalk earlier this week about this. And when you heard about the record number of complaints that he's getting about the healthcare system, does that concern you? Uh, it does. And it should be put into context. So a huge number of those complaints. And listen, people email me every day to me. So I understand, right, when they have concerns and complaints. Uh, when people look at it, it's, over, it's been a, in its majority, I think, rel- concerns related to COVID-19. Either access to vaccination at various points from people who want to get vaccinated, complaints about vaccination by people who perhaps don't want to get vaccinated, and also, of course, a lot of complaints in that year, which was, I believe, 21-22, so the year ending March 31st, 2022, um, that were related to public health measures. And so, well, I understand there were a lot of complaints, and we probably talked about them 10 or 15 times, you and I, right, on the air, about different public health measures. I think what we'll have to see in terms of the ombudsperson's process in this coming year, when there aren't uh, as many public health measures, whether we see that level of complaint. But like you've got to constantly make a system better and keep working at that. And we have had, we're in the midst of two public health emergencies and COVID-19 has massively changed things. When you have complaints, for example, within January, we had to delay surgeries. You'll have naturally, and you should, and you can imagine how it feels for people, uh, concerns from people. And uh, we've worked very, very hard to make up all those surgeries. In fact, Last week, in the midst of all of this concern that people have said, we did more surgeries than any other time at the last week recorded, which is the end of September, 
than we'd ever done. So people are working flat out in healthcare, trying to respond to those very complaints. Well, some of the other concerns too, I guess people had had is that some of them like to see that virtual care, right? Having those virtual appointments during the pandemic. And that seems to have, have gone away. Is there going to be more of a policy towards that, like getting people access to virtual care? Well, I think, I think in fact, um, I get quite often the opposite complaint to that, uh, Simi, which is people um, concerned that they can't see their primary care provider, their doctor in person, right? And, uh, and so we went, remember, we made a dramatic change in care, right? Before COVID-19, the year that ended March 2020, 20, that, that sort of fiscal year, right. we did about 97% of our appointments in person. The next year, we did 30% in person. The year that Jay Chalk's report is about, we did about 55% of appointments in person, right? And so there is both concerns, concerns by people who don't like the virtual appointment, whether it's on the phone or on some form of video link, and, uh, and who want to see their doctor in person. And we have some concerns on the other way. But the fee, we changed the fee codes in March of 2020 to maintain the primary care system when you couldn't so see your doctor in person. So we wanted to make sure we continue to have appointments. And now we have to, of course, work to um, bring a little bit of normalcy to the system, knowing that lots of people like virtual appointments. Like, you know, for yeah. some people, having a virtual appointment means they don't have to take a morning off work or don't have to find a babysitter for their kids or uh, and so on. So it's an advantage for some people, but lots of people like to see their doctor in person as well. Okay. Also, let's talk about the COVID-19 situation right now, because I, I saw that we are seeing an increasing number of cases in hospitals. What is the situation like? It's increasing somewhat, although sort of it's within a range. I think it's sort of been within a range of 340 to 400 over the last month or so. But it's our expectation that COVID-19 and the and influenza this fall are going to be um, difficult to deal with. We're going to see an increase in cases during what's called, what's always known as respiratory illness season, which is November, December, January, February. We're expecting more cases. We did a press conference, I think, a month ago, laying out how we're preparing for that. It's our expectation that there will be many more people in hospital with COVID-19 and with influenza, in uh, especially the second half of November, January, and February. We know that in part because uh, in the Southern Hemisphere, in Australia and New Zealand, say, their flu season was more difficult than it had been the previous years, and we expect that as well. In addition, we see the same thing with COVID-19. And the answer, I know you're hard to, uh, you'll be tired of hearing this maybe again, but it's to get the bivalent uh, vaccine and to get it as when you're invited to get it. More than 700,000 people have now received their bivalent vaccine. In the first week of our flu shot campaign, more than 300,000 people got vaccinated. We really need them to do that this year. It makes a big difference in our healthcare system. Mostly, it makes a big difference for you, for everyone listening to us right now. And get vaccinated. There have also been some concerns, though, about the way the flu shot is being distributed this year. Right, that you have to get that invitation to book first, whereas in years past, we could just walk into the pharmacy and do it. So why change that? Well, we have two major immunization campaigns going on right now. We put in place a get vaccinated system, which allows access for a lot of people to uh, to uh, many appointments across the system. We're doing both at once this year, so it's different than other years. In other years, we didn't have the heart of our COVID-19 vaccination campaign, and they were kind of separated, right? We had the flu shot campaign was largely in pharmacies. The COVID campaign was in both places. So we have this get vaccinated system, which is one of the improvements of COVID-19. There have been a few glitches. 
But you know what? The first week of it, uh, 300,000, more than 300,000 people got vaccinated. Last year, we hadn't started at that point, right? So we're already 300,000 ahead of last year and uh, encourage everyone to get vaccinated. There may there have been some problems. I think most of those problems will be resolved. Get vaccinated and get vaccinated twice when you go in and get vaccinated against but, COVID-19 and against influenza. What is the take-up like for that booster shot for COVID-19? It's pretty good so far, but it's a little hard to tell, you know, at this point. Um, so if you look at overall, um, if you look at both the Moderna, where we've done about 720,000 uh, immunizations and the Pfizer where we've done about 40,000 so far because it came later. Um, the, the pickup is okay, but we do have unused appointments, including today uh, in Metro Vancouver, right? So um, you don't know at the beginning because there's the first million people are what I call people who really get vaccinated. The first opportunity they're called, they get vaccinated. It's after that that we want to see how far we can push the campaign and really the campaign success depends on us being able to reach people who last year got their second COVID-19 vaccine, didn't get a booster in January. We really need that group of people haven't been vaccinated in more than a year to get vaccinated with a bivalent vaccine right now. That's a key group of people. And if you look at the campaign overall, the vast majority of people who got vaccinated with a bivalent so far are those that got their booster dose in December, January, February. Right. So they they already got their booster dose. They're getting a second booster dose. We're getting a lot more of that than we're getting people who have been vaccinated twice, but are, uh, but haven't had their first booster dose. So we really need that group of people to understand how important it is for their personal health, that of their family, that of the community, that of the healthcare system to get vaccinated. Well, the invitation is there. I know I got mine this week, too. So thank you so much for that. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk a little scary stuff, shall we? Because we love it. And at this time of year, it is everywhere, including at the Vancouver Public Library. Joining us now to talk more about that is Jorge Amigo, Head of Cultural Programming at the Vancouver Public Library. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me and for your interest in this awesome series that we're doing. Oh, yeah, it does sound awesome. So tell me about it. Well, um, it all started because we got approached by Canopy, which is uh, a streaming service uh, that, you know, is available to all Vancouver Public Library cardholders. And it's this amazing service where you can stream films and documentaries and courses and TV series. And we got approached by them because they wanted us to promote one of the films that they have there, which is a documentary on the history of folk horror that's become one of the most important documentaries of the genre. And so uh, when we had the opportunity to do an event with the filmmaker, we realized, wait a minute, why don't we have more fun and do a series of five events? And so we decided to plan a series of five events. And is it all about like people's fascination with things that scare us? Yeah, the idea is to explore, um, you know, the uncanny, our fascination with horror, with things that scare us. Um, and we wanted to really have fun with this. Um, you know, the library, we, we, a lot of our, the bulk of our programming is literary programming. And sometimes, we, you know, we do a lot of workshops and we get really serious with the things that we try to impart. But in this case, we simply wanted to entertain people, but also um, to really explore ways to reach new audiences and showcase our spaces and our services. And so part of the idea was to you know, show people that we have this beautiful film theater in the, in the eighth floor of the Central Library. And the fact that we, um, you know, we, we are a very open space that can host all kinds of things. 
Also, are zombies involved? Because, Jorge, a lot of people are scared by zombies, and I saw that there are somehow you've got zombies involved in this. Zombies are definitely involved. So what will happen is uh, on Thursday, the 27th, so next week, we are screening a very famous film called Train to Busan, which is a Korean Yes. Zombie, uh, yes. Very famous. A lot of people know it. But, you know, and many people obviously in the city have seen it, but have you seen it in the theater full of zombies? Maybe not. So our pitch here to the audience is for people to come to the library, dress as zombies, and just take over the space. Uh, and so, I mean, my dream is to see the, the eighth floor of the library full of zombies walking around through the stacks and then packed into a theater watching Train to Busan together. That's what I have in my, ha- in my head as a vision. Yeah, you know, that might be a nightmare for some people, though. <laughs> I know, it might be. It sounds terrifying. <laughs> Why do we love to be scared? Why do we love horror? Um, it's a really good question. I think horror allows us to safely explore um, the depths of the human psyche and go to places where we wouldn't go ourselves. So I think that it allows us to um, it allows us to put us, ourselves in situations that are hypothetical. Like, for example, it's very rare for you to be chased by zombies down the street. That won't necessarily happen. Very rare, yeah. Or, or be in the middle of, uh, of an apocalyptic scenario. But with horror, um, you're able to go there in your imagination. You're able to transport yourself there while being safe, psychologically safe. You know that the zombies are not real, but you can still sort of suspend your disbelief and be in a zombie world. So I think it, it allows us to explore alternative realities and the depths of the human psyche. That is very, very true. And it, th- this is a perfect time of year for this too, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So part of the idea was, uh, Halloween's coming up. How can the library do something to celebrate that very, very popular holiday? So the idea was to do one event every day of the week from Wednesday to Saturday. Um, and there's there's a little bit of, of uh, you know, events for everyone. Like, uh, you know, we we did a film uh, conversation yes, uh, this Wednesday. Uh, that was an online event. And then next week, what we're doing is we're doing a, a trivia night. So uh, on Wednesday, it's going to be called Nightmare on Library Street. <laughs> Love it. And it's basically a, a trivia night where we're going to have a round of trivia about horror films, one of them about horror literature, another one about music. Um, then, as I said, Train to Busan, the zombies take over the library. Then uh, on Friday, we're uh, uh, screening Dial M for Murder, the classic Hitchcock thriller. And then, uh, and that's a, a 12 p.m., so, it, you know, it's a matinee for people who want to hang out at the library at noon. And then on Saturday, we're doing a spooky story salon where we're going to have um, storytellers, poets, uh, talking about spooky stories and local uh, local lore. I love this. Now, interesting that you chose Dial M for Murder, because I would have thought if you're choosing a scary Hitchcock movie, I would go with The Birds myself. The Birds, yeah, I know. Especially in Vancouver, where we have so many yes. terrifying birds. Especially when they're nesting. Yeah, I know. I hear you. But, you know, that's what we chose. <laughs> next year. Next year, right, Jorge? Yeah, exactly. So how has it been? Are people super interested in this? Very interested. We're seeing a lot of attention, a lot of uh, shares on our social media, on the tweets. And whenever we you know, talk about this, there's a lot of reactions to it. So I think people uh, are excited that we're, we're putting this on. Um, the event that we just had had a really nice online attendance. Uh, yeah, there's been there's been a very, very positive reaction. So I think part of part of what we've learned from this experience is that we, we want this series to be a yearly series so that every year the, you know, the public can expect their library to program some fun Halloween stuff the week for, uh, leading up to Halloween. Okay. Now, so you can see this becoming a regular thing. I think so, yeah. I think that this is an opportunity to do a regular series. Okay. So let me ask you then, Jorge, do you love scary movies? 
Um, I'm not a mega fan of scary movies. I'll occasionally watch one, but no, I, I I'm not. I'm not. I, you know what? I have a hard time um, forgetting them or or ignoring them. I, I think about them for days after, so I, I don't love them. No. So you can't, for instance, watch the movie It and then maybe walk down a dark street on by yourself. Absolutely cannot. Um, <laughs> you sure you want to think about that cannot. for a second? Are you sure? <laughs> In, uh, you know what? I, I also can't watch uh, the the Ring. Because, you know, that kind of film just breaks this barrier of, you know, the, the, the monster is actually coming out of my TV. So it really breaks this suspension of disbelief for me. So I, I, I had a hard time sleeping after I watched that film. Really? So, like, what about older ones? Like, okay, if, it, if the TV one bothers you, like, what about Poltergeist? You can't watch that? Um, you know what? Some of the older films, the effects are a bit silly. <laughs> so, oh, so you can live with it. Like, what about the original Halloween? Like, the very first Halloween? That's a scary movie. That is a scary movie. Um, yeah, I mean, I watched it a long time ago, and I think that as a teenager, I I enjoyed them a lot more. Right, um, I'm with you though, Jorge, because like as a teenager, I was I was so scared of scary movies. I don't know what's happened to me in my old age, but I'm enjoying them more as I get older. I don't know what that what that's all about. <laughs> maybe maybe you. Um, you uh, have ways of feeling psychological safety that are Maybe. better. Maybe you you've matured in a way that your 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 brain allows you to really distance yourself from what you're, what's on screen. I haven't achieved that that level yet. <laughs> well, you know what, Jorge? There's always hope. Trust me, it'll happen for you. I love this uh, programming that's going on, though. So, where can people find out more? Uh, so, the way to find out more is to go to the library's website, and on the very landing page, we have. Uh, a, a block on the landing page that says lights out at the library. It's right in the front and center of the library's website, which is dpl.ca. And that's the easiest way. Um, and that's it. Just look for lights out. That's the name of the series. Um, and, right. you know, people can also just look at our social media on, on Twitter and on Facebook. You'll see the events posted as well. But uh, lights out at the library. That's the easiest way to find it. I love it. It sounds like so much fun. Jorge, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, what a pleasure chatting with you.